The Lord be with you. There is a kind of restlessness. Call it the background noise of dissatisfaction that we homo sapiens live with and carry with us in our hearts and our minds and we wear it on our bodies. It's a part of the human experience that we can't even always name or explain or understand. It's definitely responsible for a lot of the good discoveries and explorations and innovations of the human species, propelling us towards our best yet efforts for equality or justice and social change. There is a shadow side, of course, the restless heart syndrome, and its associated, associated anxieties and habits are a fuel for some of our worst impulses, giving rise to so much of our grief and woe and worry and indulgence and distraction and anxiety. But that's another sermon. Abiding agitation takes so many shapes at different stages of our lives, doesn't it? It's that feeling a student carries through the term when the program is almost finished. It's that force that finally compels a woman to leave her loser boyfriend and quit her job and sell everything she has so she can buy a panel van and camperize it and set out an exploration of the world. It's... The midlife crisis and the occasion of regular second-guessing of our life choices, no matter how old we are. Restlessness is a kind of primal energy that helps form societies like the Amish, the Beats, the Goths, hippies, punk rockers, folks who get called strange or weird or radical or queer. So many of the congregations of impatient souls who aspire to make their entire way of being a sort of living protest against the crimes and excesses of our society. Where would we be without the discontented hearts of daring and outrageous people living their audacious lives in our midst? People who dare to give voice to the discontent that so many of us are just trying to learn to live with. The 4th century philosopher, theologian, and total beast mode party animal, Augustine of Hippo, built his whole theology around this view of human struggle. In relation to our creator, we are an agitated and discontented people. Augustine famously wrote in his memoirs, Our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. The gospel stories recount for us a view of the world with all of its difficulties and struggles and outrages, while presenting us with the life and ministry of Jesus, his work and teaching as a rabbi from Nazareth who called his followers to a different way of being, a different way of seeing the whole world 
a different way of living and speaking, shaped by the arrival of this strange thing called the kingdom of God. Now, you could even say that the practice of seeking the kingdom of God is a weird kind of old biblical language to describe a lifelong journey. The journey of a person who is not satisfied with things as they are. And the thing is, the strange language of the kingdom also suggests that God is not satisfied with things as they are. With promises and assurances of a new day, dawning with hope and comfort for the troubled, justice and renovation for the damaged, God makes some outrageous promises. The Gospel according to Mark is famous, really famous, especially among scholars, for its economy of language, to put it nicely. Sentences stripped down to the bare essentials, using only the most potent distillation of meaning to breathlessly get the point across. And if you're reading the Gospel of Mark, this can be annoying, especially if you're looking for some literary flourishes or if you'd like, maybe just a few more details. That being said, I have found that with enough time in Mark's gospel, a sort of stark poetry starts to take shape in that careful wording. Mark only wrote the words that he needed to, like a print from a woodcut image that leaves us with a stark impression. The evangelist's vision comes through comes through clearly. And after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. John the baptizer, the free and wild man of the desert is locked up in chains. The greatest prophet, the one whose whole life was an embodied work of prophetic utterance, is in a jail cell. What is wrong with this world when the tyrants get to imprison good people, great people even? Suppressing the voices that call us to authenticity and truth, repentance, and the fair orientation and shaping of our lives. John, the baptizer, locked up in a Jerusalem dungeon, is everything that's wrong with the world. This is the scene that Mark walks us into. This is the end of John's work. The long time of waiting is over. This is the time, the beginning of a new thing. And Jesus is in his own neighborhood. It's the small start of a big project called the good news of God. Good news because the kingdom of God has come near. And there's that phrase again, the kingdom of God, a difficult and mysterious and daunting image, we can't actually say for certain 
what the first century Galileans would have thought when they heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. It's a safe bet, though, that a lot of them, a lot of the followers and seekers and hangers-on, needed some clarification. Even some of them probably had to stay after class for extra help with the concept. And Jesus spent a lot of time unpacking it. In Mark's Gospel, we get parable accounts of the exponential growth of little seeds, the sower of gospel crops, spreading the kingdom in the wind. Sometimes Jesus frames the kingdom as a battle with the strong man, or a story about a shockingly violent, uh, the shockingly violent caretakers of a vineyard. The kingdom of God is a strange and compelling idea. The kingdom of God is like a, a new species of bacteria that eats plastic, radioactive plastic. The reign of God is like a man named Jarev Payeng, known as the forest man, an indigenous man from the missing people in northeastern India who started planting trees on a patch of dirt in 1979 and then came to realize after 30 years of work, a wasteland transformed into a 550-hectare forest with an ecosystem so rich in life, it was home to creatures like tigers and rhinos and elephants. The kingdom of God changes the landscape and the scenery and the ecosystem. The kingdom of God is the declaration that the one who made everything, the one who made us and puts us in this world, can and could and will and is tending to the strange and beautiful and frustrating work of Setting this world right. Like I said, I don't know for sure what a first century Galilean might have understood about the kingdom of God as a theological idea, but we sure get an idea. When Jesus invites some local fishermen with another strange image that sounds an awful lot like kingdom of God language, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Boy, those restless fishermen don't miss a beat. They throw down their nets and they jump right out of their rubber boots and they run down the dock to join Jesus in a whole new thing. They don't know what it is. It's probably a bit of a shock to dear old old dad and the rest of the boat crew. Thanks for the memories, guys. And two sets of brothers, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, in a moment, hearing the call that changes everything. I'm a fisher of people. Guess I need new business cards. Whatever that means, this new vocation, this new direction, no longer casting nets. A disciple is anyone who hears about this whole God in the world thing and says, I'm in. Sign me up. Make me a part of this, even if I don't know what it's going to look like. At the start of a whole new thing, Jesus' first bit of business was the beginning of a new people. A little local project that would become a great global work, scooping up multitudes in the net of God's mercy. 
pulling up lost souls from the crushing darkness of their overwhelming circumstances. Rich and beautiful, difficult and astonishing, incremental kingdom work. Can our lives ever be the same? Good news. The kingdom of God has come near. And here's the thing. The good news part of this whole thing is not just the promise that God's kingdom is on the move in the world. The good news part of this whole thing is that we find out that we are an integral part of this whole project. The kingdom of God is people surprised when they realized that the mysterious thing includes us. Disciples are not called to be bystanders or tourists or dabblers or critics or observers. We are called to live and act in the thick of it. This urgent project of change and transformation happens first in our midst. It is made of people like us. What a shame then that so much of what calls itself the Christian faith, what gets said and done in the name of Jesus, is characterized by a stubborn protection of things as they are, maintaining and supporting and celebrating even really toxic powers and systems and habits. Why do we defend such cruel systems? It doesn't hurt for the church to make a practice now and then to ask ourselves, who is it that we follow? In the season of Epiphany, different traditions and practices in the global church set aside these weeks to again consider the strange miracle of the God who speaks into human history calling us to be a part of the strange and mysterious and simple and beautiful, life-giving, peacemaking, sharing, and dreaming project. This season is a time for us to sit for a few beats and ponder. What does it mean when Christ calls out to me and says, follow me and I will make you fish for people? And then this same season is a time for us to step out with a refreshed sense of calling, perhaps a renewed enthusiasm for our part in all of this. Friends, where would we be without the discontented hearts, the kingdom change agents among us, the strange people, fishers of human beings, (laughs) endeavoring to make their whole lives the embodied work of kingdom utterance. People who give voice to the discontent that so many of us have, the discontent that many of us are merely trying to live with. Friends, look around at all the other surprised faces, amazed and grateful to be a part of a miracle. Can you name any of those amazing, inspiring, strange, and weird people in your life? I know I'm still a little bit starstruck and gobsmacked by the stunningly talented Amanda Gorman, that brilliant poet laureate who is the living embodiment of that same restless, hopeful, courageous heart. 
And I'll ask you, what is it going to look like? What could it look like tomorrow or the next day or five or ten years from now in a place like this if we really let the kingdom do its work in our midst? As our restless spirits carry us ever deeper, what is it going to look like? I can't wait to find out. Thanks be to God.